If you've got your Bibles today, I want to invite you to take them and turn to the New Testament. Uh, if you go to the middle, I want to invite you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be in verse 13 in a few minutes and spend our time with a few verses there, 2 Corinthians 3.13. We'll also have those verses up on the screen, so if you don't have a Bible today, uh, you'll be able to follow along with us. As you're turning there, um, let me just kind of ask you this question to start, and I, I know it may seem a bit like a silly question, but how many of you are on Facebook? Like, like how many people? Get you, if you have a Facebook profile, just get your hand up in the air and keep it up for just a moment, all right? Okay, just kind of look around a little bit. Now put it down, all right? Maybe a better question is how many of you aren't on Facebook? Go, we, Monty's hand just went up immediately, all right. Okay, we, there is a remnant that remains. Will you give these folks a hand for just standing strong, standing strong in this world? Not meant to embarrass anyone today. I, I, I have to tell you that I, I, I do have a Facebook account. And I kind of sort of have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with Facebook. And and a love-hate relationship in that, you know, I I know that it's useful and it can be a great way to communicate and, and, you know, kind of learn a little bit more, you know, about some people and things like that. But I also have to tell you that I find it very amusing too. Like when I step back and just objectively watch Facebook world happen, you you really can't help but laugh a little bit. You really can't help but chuckle. I mean, you know, why we care about the things that we care about and the things that we put on there. I mean, really, I mean, when it comes down to it, do we care or do I really care that you washed your car yesterday, you know, or or that you decided to get the fajita burrito from Chipotle for lunch, you know. But the truth is that you'll post that and I'll read it. Or somebody else too and think, oh wow, yeah, they got the fajita burrito, you know, that, that sounds great. Or, or, or I think it's amusing, you know, what people are willing to, to say on something like Facebook. I mean, I might not say this to my spouse, I might not say it to a close friend or to my parents, but I'll go ahead and tell my 786 friends on Facebook, you know, what I'm really thinking, you know, or what happened to me today. And, and we'll do that. I, I mean, we'll do those kinds of things. I remember when I was a college pastor uh, serving in Louisville and we had put on this big event at a park one night and the event came to an end and we were wrapping up and everybody was heading out but there was this young guy and this young girl and I knew they were dating and they stayed behind even as everyone was leaving and, and took they, well, they were sitting at a picnic table together across from one another and you could, you could just kind of tell from their posture that they were having a talk. All right. I mean, this was something deep, something significant. Well, we left. And well, later on that night, and you know, it's not official until it's posted on Facebook. I noticed that they both updated their account to where it said no longer in a relationship. All right. You know, and so they had this conversation. It's happened. And now they've moved on They're They're no longer in a relationship. But I think profile pics are kind of funny, too. You know, we all choose a pic. And and I think we choose a picture for a reason. Uh, you know, I think there's always something behind the picture that we choose. And, you know, sure, we're proud and we want other people. At, but I think we really choose pictures. We, we choose pictures because what we see in a picture maybe is what we want other people to see. And so maybe you'll choose a picture uh, of graduation or you'll choose a picture of you and, and your kids or maybe you and your grandkids or something like that. And that these pictures, well, there's really something more behind the pictures that we choose. But think about this with me, if you would. Um, What if instead of choosing a picture for something like your profile on Facebook, what, what if instead you had to choose just one word? or maybe two words, to to kind of sort of describe how you want people to see you. You know, that that when they see you or see your name, they automatically think something like attractive. 
I mean, maybe that's how you want people to see you. Or, or when they think or hear your name, they think successful. Or when they think or, or see your name or your picture, they think new mom or new dad or new grandma or new grandpa or, or maybe world traveler or happy or, you know, working hard, overachiever, overcomer. How about spiritual? Well, last Sunday, we talked about one thing that we all have in common. And if you're taking notes and you want to write this down, we, we talked about the fact that we're all broken. Every single one of us. We're, we're calling this series Shattered, but we're all broken. We're broke by the things that have been done to us. And we're broke by the things that, uh, that maybe we've done to others. And, and we all experience, we've all experienced, you know, these feelings and, and fears and adequacies. We've all got different expressions of guilt and shame that have affected us in some way. We're, we're broken by the personal sins that we've committed, but we're broke by the original sin in the Garden of Eden, which we talked about last week, and that because of this original sin, there is a bent in every one of us and really a bent in all of this world toward rebellion. And the truth is, the fact is that we're all broken. And whether you choose to admit it or not, When you look in a mirror, when I look in a mirror, this is what we see. And when you're really, truly honest with yourself about your image, I think to some degree, and for some of us greater than others, we... There is a bit of an emotional response as we think about our lives and even a shattered mirror like this because, you know, your mirror and my mirror, it tells a story. I mean, it tells a story of the days past and the life that we've lived. And so maybe you look at different crack marks or a different point and think, yeah, that, that, was, that was when I was a kid and I endured some abuse and maybe it was even repeated abuse. Or, yeah, those shattered marks there, well, yeah, that's college. And uh, that was not a good time in my life and a whole bunch of decisions that were made. You know, that, that was my first marriage and that didn't go so well. Or now that's when I lost a child or lost a loved one, someone that was really close to me. And so in some way, shape, or form, we've all got an an image like this. We've got a reflection like this. And when we look into a mirror, if we're really honest with ourselves, there's a story that's told by our shattered mirror. And our response is this. Our response in so many situations is to hide. All right, we talked a little bit about that last week. We're going to talk about that a little bit more today, that that we hide. I don't want really people, for people to see me, to see the true story or to see what's going on on the inside. And so I'll do my best to hide. And so I'll hide from others and I'll hide from myself and I'll even try and hide from God. And then the problem is, the challenge is that here's what we try and do. We try and fix this. And every one of us is guilty of trying to fix this, uh, to put these pieces back together and to see if we can't do that all on our own. How how many of you are fix-it people? We got any fix-it people here today? Got some handy people in the room? I mean, you know, you're the kind of people that if a project comes up, you can tackle it. You know, you've got all the right tools. You know, you've had the right teachers. You've had the right experience. And, and really, when you think about it, you've got a will in you. You've got a desire in you that if something breaks, it's a personal challenge. Like, you know, can I get this fixed? We've got some people like that, right? You live with some people like that. But then there's everybody else. You know, that you're not like that and uh, you haven't had those teachers and, you know, you haven't had those experiences. You don't have that will or desire. I mean, you have a credit card and a phone, you know, to call somebody else and you don't have the right tools. 
Well, I, I just want to encourage you today that really you may not have the right tools, but they're really only three essential tools that you need for every job. I don't know if you realize this or not, but those are three essential tools are WD-40, um, duct tape, in my opinion, and then the final is just a butter knife. I mean, that's really all you, you need. Because I don't know if you've heard this or not, but here's the way it works. I mean, if it doesn't move and it's supposed to, you just put a little WD-40 on it. And if it moves or it, and it's not supposed to, uh, you just use a little duct tape. And well, if those don't work, I mean, there's nothing that a butter knife can't solve or any combination, you know, of these three types of things. I mean, we, we, we all can make those attempts to try and fix things. And whether you're handy or not, the truth is that every single one of us will try and fix ourselves. You know, we'll do whatever we can to put these shattered pieces back together. We'll make these attempts and, and it's just that brokenness in us. I mean, we've all got that brokenness in us. It's something that we can all relate to. And as a way of our fixing ourselves, here's the problem, and here's really what I want to get at today. We'll go looking for other things in this world to hide behind, to even use as a disguise, as a way of hiding what's really going on here. And there's a great example of this uh, in, in the Bible that... Um, well, I want to look at that in just a moment. Actually, I'm jumping ahead of myself here. Um, I want to tell you, I'm currently leading a connection group on Wednesday mornings and uh, with a group of men. And we've been getting together on Wednesday mornings. And we're reading a great book, one, one of the best books that I've read in a really long time, uh, a book by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods. And it's an excellent book. You know, counterfeit gods is another way of saying false gods. And, and what Keller really argues in the book is that we're all guilty. I mean, we're all guilty of bowing down to these counterfeit gods or these false gods. And, and, and here's how Keller defines a counterfeit god or a false god. He says that a counterfeit god is anything so essential and, and central to your life that should you lose it would make your life feel hardly worth living. You got anything like that? I mean, anything outside of God right now uh, in your life? I mean, we're all guilty of embracing these counterfeit gods. We're all guilty of bowing down to different false idols. Now, I know that when you hear a word like idol, you might think to yourself, well, that sounds like people bowing down before, like, you know, these idols or statues or gods. Like, that's something that happened a long time ago or happens in a real primitive place. But, but, but Scripture says that false idols aren't just graven images. They're not just, you know, false deities. But an idol is anything that we look to to do the work that only God can do these counterfeit gods, these false images we hide behind. And anything can serve as a false god. I mean, even the best things in life. You know, what become those false idols for us today? Well, an idol can be your family. It could be your children. It could be a career or making money, achievement and social standing. It, It could be a romantic relationship or at least the obsession to be in one. Uh, it's peer approval and competence and skill. It's financial security and, and, and personal beauty or intelligence. A great political cause or a great social cause, your morality or even success in ministry can become a false idol for you. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else, we call it codependency, but it's really idolatry. Again, an idol is anything that you look at, anything that you embrace, anything that you become so dependent in that when you look at it, your heart says that if I have that, then my life will have meaning. If I have that, then I'll be able to find significance and security and healing. And so we've all got these false gods in our lives. And do you know what we do with them? We hide behind them. 
I mean, we, we hide behind them. We, we look to them to provide, to satisfy those God-given needs and desires in us. And, and once again, you know, these examples of these false gods and what they can be in your life and in my life, they're not necessarily bad things. But anytime anything other than God becomes the ultimate thing in your life, it has become an idol. We see a great example of this in the Bible. I gave this away just a moment ago. We all know the name of Moses. Uh, if you've been here with us over the last few weeks, we looked at Moses' life just a few weeks ago. And what did Moses do? Well, he did a number of things. I mean, he saw God in the burning bush. Uh, he went before the Pharaoh and led the people out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea so that the people could walk through. And not too long after the people walked through the Red Sea, Moses had this privilege of going to the top of, of a mountain to meet with God. It was just Moses and God. And the Bible tells us that when Moses came down from the mountain, that his face was glowing. Uh, the Bible uses the word radiate. It was sh- shining from being in the presence of God. And at first, Moses didn't realize his face was glowing, but then people started freaking out. I mean, I mean they saw him and they saw what was going on with his face. And, and so they're startled by it, but the glow didn't last. And as time passed, the glowing would fade away. And it would fade until Moses had the opportunity to go back up to the top of the mountain to be with God. And then it would start glowing again. Well, well, the Bible says that Moses did something that was really pretty interesting. You know, his face was glowing all the time. And because of this, he started wearing a mask. He started wearing a veil to cover his face. Now, I was always under the impression that Moses covered his face because he was tired of people commenting on a shining face all the time. You know, I mean, he was tired of people saying things or maybe it was hurting their eyes or something. But that's not the case. I mean, if you look to the New Testament, look at what it says now as we pick it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. That verse says that we are not like Moses, and here's what he did, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Now, just stop and think about that for a second. I mean, because it's pretty interesting that Moses didn't put a veil over his face so that people couldn't see the shining it was so that they couldn't see when the shining started to fade away. Now, here's what I think is interesting about that. If you think about that for a second, I mean, the question is, is there some hiding going on here? I mean, some pride, maybe even some embarrassment. Has Moses become so obsessed with this shining face thing that that he doesn't want people to see him when the shining actually begins to fade away? Now, I have to tell you that if that's the key, I can't blame him. I mean, if I had the privilege like Moses to go just me and God, I'd want others to know about it too. You know, I'd want to be able to show that off for a while. But his actions are pretty ridiculous when he's trying to print. He's still burning him in the dead. I mean, this most people out like he's not spiritual enough or something when the shining fades away. And so even he is very concerned about his own personal image, you know, almost like you and I are. But before we call him out too, let's not forget that Moses shared the one thing in common that we all share in common, and that is this brokenness. I mean, we know that he struggled with words and confidence. We know that he struggled with faith. We know that Moses killed a man. I mean, he's got this in his past. You know, he, he, he doubted God more than once, so he's got this brokenness. And even multiple face-to-face encounters with God weren't enough to completely cure him with his own personal struggle that he had with his own brokenness. And, and Moses' face glowing, again, it's not a bad thing. I mean, it was a good thing. But remember, we're all guilty of making good things into ultimate things. 
And good things can so quickly become the false images that we hide behind or we look to or, or you know, we try and get behind, behind them. And I mean, you know, think about it. It could be success, this drive for success. It, it can be your kids. It could be your family. It can be a vacation or a particular job or a particular degree. I mean, any of these things can be good things. But good things become ultimate things when we look to them to do only the work that God can do. And so what is it for you? I mean, when you think about your life and when you think about your tendencies and when you think about your weaknesses, and we all have them, what's the veil that you put over the mirror in your life to try and hide what's really going on behind? What's the false God or the false image that you hide behind? And again, if it helps, we're all guilty. I mean, we've all got this tendency in us. And, and sometimes it works, at least for a while, we'll hide these things. We'll, we'll embrace certain things or we'll hide ourselves behind our kids or we'll hide ourselves behind our job or a personal goal or something. And before long, before we even realize it, it becomes the ultimate thing in our life. But if it's not God, then it's become a false God. And there's one big problem with false gods. Sooner or later, they'll fail you. They can't do the work that only God can do. And so what do we do? I mean, if that's the tendency and we're all guilty, what do we do about this? Well, in the same part of the New Testament where it talks about Moses and his veil and why he wore it, there are a few verses that talk about a solution, that talk about a solution to this problem that we have of false images, uh, this tendency to look to other things to do the work that only God can do, a solution to our tendency to try and fix ourselves. And I want to look at a few of those verses with you today. If you just skip over, if you're in 2 Corinthians 3, skip over to verse 16 and let's pick it up there. Here's what Paul writes. He says, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Friends, that's good news right there. I mean, that's the gospel message. You know, this veil is a symbol of our sinfulness. You know, this veil is a symbol of our tendency to try and fix ourselves. And Paul says, you know, the power and the promise of Jesus through the gospel is that when that veil is removed, when we embrace Christ as the only one who can fix us, then the veil is taken away from us and everything changes. You know, healing and eternity becomes ours in Jesus Christ. Continuing on, it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You know, because of our brokenness, we're all guilty of turning good things into the ultimate things in our life. You know, we'll take up these false images and we'll hope that they can do the work or they can repair us or that at least they'll hide the pain or the true feelings that we're experiencing in our life, but it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Look at again at those words, picking it up in, in verse 18 this time. Notice that it says, and we all, and now Paul shifted here because he's talking about those who are in Christ Jesus. And so those, this is for those of you that have put your trust in Jesus Christ. It says, and we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. And now what? Are being transformed into his image. Today, I want to challenge you even as I am being challenged too, even as I have been challenged over this past week, I want to challenge you to stop trying to fix yourself and turn to the only one who is capable of putting your shattered life and my shattered life 
back together. I, I want to challenge you to turn to God as he is the only one who is capable and able to fix it. You know, the key word here, and to write this down in your notes, the key word is the word transformation. The key word that I want to focus in on is transformation. Just write that down in your notes because transformation is the work that God wants to do in you and me. All right, now I want to ask a couple of questions about a word like that. The first question is this, who does that work? I want to remind you, I can't say this enough to you and to me today, that God does the work. God does the work of transformation. Look at the the last half of verse 18. It says, it comes from this work of transformation. It comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Again, who does the work? God does the work. God does the work of transformation in us. He is the only one that can put these pieces back together. It's that work of transformation. And again, back to verse 18, I want you to notice that it says, and we all, that's every one of us, those who are in Christ Jesus, and his desire is to do that work in you for those of you who are outside of Christ Jesus. But it says that we all are being transformed, that we are being changed. You know, that God is doing the work of putting these pieces back together. And just a quick language lesson here. You know, the words and very specific words being transformed are what language experts would say is the passive voice. And it's to remind us that it is a process. All right, this process of transformation, it is an ongoing, continual work. You know, transformation is not just something that happens ultimately one time and doesn't need to continue after that, but it is this continual process. It's this work that God is doing in you and me. We don't do the work of transformation. God does. I mean, you and I can't put these shattered pieces back together. It's the work of God, and it's a process, and it's a lifelong process. We're reminded of this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you when you turned your life over to Jesus Christ, will continue on that work, as the Bible says, to its very completion until the day that Jesus Christ returns. And, and that's just, I hope that you can find it as good news because if you're frustrated at all where you are right now with God or even some of the hurt and pain that you're still dealing with, even after trusting Jesus, again, it's a reminder that it is a continual process. It is a work that God will continue to do in your life ultimately until the day when Jesus Christ returns when we will be restored fully and completely once and for all. And God does the work. Now, I don't know how that rings for you, but that's good news for me. That, that, that's good news for me to know that it's all on him, that the responsibility is on him. Because when, for me, it's all about false images, that I have to work hard. That, then I'm responsible. Then I have to do all the work. Because when I'm looking to things other than God to fix me, well, then again, all of the responsibility is on me. Take money, for example. I mean, if you hide behind money, if money is the false image, the false God in your life, if that's where you turn, you know, then, then I got to keep making money and then not only keep making that money, but I've got to preserve that money and I got to keep holding on to that money. And so then there's this desire for security and this, what if it is taken away? If it's about being a good mom for you and you put all of your energy, you know, into being a good mom and all of your purpose and your significance comes from your success as a mom, then it's all on you. Like you have to do all the work, but transformation from heaven isn't like that. You know, transformation from heaven, it's not about me. It's not up to me. It's his work in me. Again, transformation is the work that God does in us. And what God wants to do in your life and in my life, he wants to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. He wants to transform us in such a way that by his power and through his spirit, that when we look in the mirror, we no longer see ourselves, but we see Jesus. And those are the pieces that he's putting back together. I mean, we sometimes call this Christ-likeness, right? Kind of a a churchy word of sorts. Now, if you're new to church and you hear a term like Christ-likeness, you might think to yourself, well, whoa, 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 wait a second. 
I mean, I'm listening, you know, maybe I'm into something of this, but like, but to be transformed into Christ-likeness, I don't know. Because when you hear the word Christ-likeness, you can't help but think of so-called Christians that you've known. You, you can't help but think of hypocritical or judgmental Christians or a church or, or maybe it's the dad that you knew that served on a board and then went home and just would rough up, you know, his wife every week. Or, or you think about how you were treated by a former church when they learned that you were pregnant. Or, or becoming Christ-like for you, I mean, maybe that conjures up all of these images of weak or uh, of timid or a pushover or something. But here's the thing. Jesus is not weak. And he's certainly not a pushover. And the Bible says that he is the son of God and that he is the full embodiment of both grace and truth. And Jesus Christ came to this earth and he came to give his life as a ransom for many to serve. He's a defender of the weak and he is the ultimate healer and he is a friend of sinners. And he lived his life with purpose and with passion and he invites you and me to do that very same thing. The work that God wants to do in your life and in my life is the work of transformation. And it is this continual, lifelong process where God transforms us to become more and more like His Son. Now, does that mean that we all end up cookie-cutter Christians? No. I mean, that's not God's desire for us. I mean, the great thing about this church or even the body of Christ for that matter is it says that we're like this body and we all make up these different parts. You know, I believe and I believe the Bible teaches that there is a unique individual expression of Jesus that you were meant to be that no one else can be. You know, no one else ever but you. And God wants to use every bit of you. He wants to use every part of you, your talents and skills and even your temperament to transform you into someone who more than anything else loves God and is able to demonstrate that with your life and the way that you love other people. And so what does that look like? Well, we'll just say it like this. If, if you've got a quick temper... Right? Maybe you've got a quick temper or something. Maybe that's a part of your temperament. I, I believe that God wants to transform that quick temper you know, from impulsive, self-centered outburst into an intensity that's directed for other people's good and for God's purposes. That He can do that work of transformation in us and He can do that over time. If you're quiet and reserved, I'm not going to say that God wants to transform you into this outgoing you know, sort of a person. But maybe he is going to transform you into someone where, you know, where that quiet spirit is something that can bless other people and bless other relationships, all for the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Transformation is the work that God does in us, and it's in all of us. Not just me, not just you, but it's in all of us. And it's not just in those of you that would raise your hand to say, you know what, my life is a big mess right now. Even for those of you that may think, you know, my my life seems to be having going on right now, you know. God is doing this work in tra- of transformation in all of us. And I, and I just remind you that He's responsible. And, and that is such good news because if you're here today and you feel so overwhelmed and so overrun by, by past decisions or past choices or even what's going on in your life right now, I just want to tell you how great our God is. I mean, He can take your shattered life. He can take whatever it is that you see in the mirror right now and he can turn it into good and he can heal you. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 where Paul writes, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Notice that word handiwork. Who does the work? God does the work. I I like the way that one version of the Bible says this, that we are God's masterpiece created in christ jesus 
to do good works. That when you invite Jesus Christ into your life, He begins this process of putting these pieces back together. And no matter what mess you feel like you've made of your life or someone else has made of your life, that God can even take your life and your story and your image and He can turn it into good. And He can give you a ministry and He could give you a story to tell for others that are going to have a great effect not only on your life but on others, but give all the glory to God in this world because He has a purpose and a plan for you and for your life. He wants to do this work of transformation in us and all of us. And just a reminder that God does the work. The second question that I want to ask of that, of transformation, is this. What part do I play? What part do you play? You know, I, I can't do the work of transformation. All right, you can't. I can't put all of this back together, but we'll try. I mean, we'll try and do that, but there is a way that we can participate in the work of transformation of God in our lives. Go back, if you would, a couple of verses. Go back to uh, verse 16. These verses start out like this. Paul writes, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, I want you to see the word turn there. If you've got your own Bible, maybe you circle that word. Maybe it's translated another way. But our willingness to turn really jumpstarts this process of transformation in our lives. I mean, as Christians, it's the one way that we cooperate with God's work of transformation in us. Our part, our part is in the word turn. And put another way, the word turn can also be translated repent. Or repentance. Now, again, that word repentance, kind of like Christ-likeness, is, is another churchy sort of a word. And when you hear the word repent, you probably or maybe even think about some preacher on TV or something, you know, that rubbed you the wrong way. But Jesus used the word repent, and he used it a lot. And, and repentance is a matter of identification. And one commentary says it like this. Repentance is a conscious rejection of one's old ways and a turning to God and his new ways. You know, it's you and me saying, I see the situation that I'm in and I don't like it and I have nowhere else to turn. And it means more than just simply saying I'm sorry. It means more than than saying that I'm wrong, although that's a part of it. But to repent means to turn. It means to turn away from anything that I've ever looked to or I am looking to as a false image or as a false God. And this idea of repentance of God, even in the Old Testament, was always followed by or always implied turning away from these false idols. But it's the same today too. It's acknowledging that I need to repent for how I've turned something good into something ultimate. This isn't cutting it for me anymore. Jesus is what I really need. Now, some of you need to repent of an kind of an unending pursuit of romance and sexual love. Right, now, there's nothing wrong with romance. There's nothing wrong with sex and the covenant of marriage. But, but so many worship romance and so many worship sex today as if it has the power, if it contains all the power to, to make us swell and the power to meet all of our needs. But it doesn't. They don't. Only God has that power. Some of you need to repent of the way that you've put things like money and stuff on a pedestal. You know, people will go to great lengths, you know, to appease this power of money and these pursuits of accumulation and, and money and wealth. And then when they have it, then again, they're left with this fear of trying to maintain it and they'll wrap their arms around or wondering what it'll be like if they were to ever lose it. Some need to repent of the ongoing pursuit of success and, and busyness. And again, there's nothing wrong with setting goals. I mean, there's nothing wrong with working hard, but you can't serve both God and success. And if you're trapped looking for significance and healing from these things, then you need to repent and turn to God. 
transformation begins when you turn to God. It starts with repentance. It's acknowledging that these false gods won't cut it for me. And because we realize that the work will never get done on our own and Jesus is all that we need, we begin the process of repenting and turning from those things, those things that we've made into ultimate things. But, but there's more to repentance. All right, there's more to repentance. You know, repentance means turning, but I want to give you another word, and it just happens to start with R-E, and the third one will too. But, but the next word is the word release. It means releasing. Repentance also means releasing. You know, it's not, because it's not only important that we identify the false images or the false gods or the veil that we hide behind in our life, but we must release those gods too. We, we must release ourselves from the power that they have over us. We release them by saying, you know what, I've looked to you long enough. You're not coming through for me. I've trusted you with promises that you can't deliver. And so I'm repenting of my dependence on you or in you, and you control me no more. And, and so again, take someone who struggles with the need to have a certain physical appearance. I mean, if you struggle with the need to have a certain physical appearance, I mean, your positive self-image is going to de- be dependent on what you think of yourself or what others are saying about you. And this in and of itself has the power to define you and, and what you think, and it owns you, and you become captive to it. And it's one thing to see this, and it's one thing to identify this or acknowledge this as a weakness in your life, but it's another to begin the work of letting it go, of saying this isn't going to define me anymore. And so we must not only release, you know, or identify the power this false image has over us, but we must release ourselves from the power that we've allowed it to have. Or take the pursuit of sexual love and fulfillment. I mean, many men. You know, many Christian men, especially, even struggle with an addiction to pornography. And it becomes like a God for so many people. And chances are that there are many men, and maybe even many men who will walk in the doors of this place today. And, you know, over a time here this morning, you'll walk away and you'll experience the guilt and the shame that comes with it and what you've done. And, and you're able, we're able to identify the false image and maybe even feel remorse for it. But it's the releasing this false God that we're not able to do. I mean, there's this inability or this difficulty in letting go. And why? I mean, why is that the case? I mean, why is releasing or letting go of this false image or these false gods and the manipulation and the power they have over us so difficult? It's because we're broken. I mean, we're shattered. I mean, we're powerless on our own. I mean, think about how many times you've heard the story where someone repents and they've got all of this desire to change things, but it's not too long that they fall right back into that trap or they run back into that trap once again. I mean, that's what we do because we can't fix ourselves. And that is why it's so important that we see that while turning is repenting and turning is releasing, well, the last word that I want to give you is that it's also about replacing that we must replace, you and I must replace that God-given need in our lives with the only one who will never let us down. You have to replace that need in your life with Jesus and continually go back to Him each and every day. Again, idolatry is not just a failure to obey God, but it is setting the course of your whole life on something other than God. And this problem in us cannot be fixed by repenting alone. It cannot be fixed by just willpower in us that says, you know what, today it's going to change. Everything's going to change. I'm, I'm going to do this right on my own right now. But I like the way that Tim Keller says it. And using, as my buddy Dave Lybrook always likes to talk about a garden analogy, he says that if you uproot the idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back. 
See, it's not about just simply repenting, but releasing, but most importantly, replacing. That there is this God-given need inside of me. And I have been looking to things other than God to fill this need, to put these pieces back together in my life. But there is only one who can do that, and it's Jesus. And I need just as much, if not more of him today than I did yesterday. If you're a Christian, if you've known Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for 20 years, I, I promise you, you need, as, you need him more today than you did then. We have this continual need for Jesus because, again, transformation is this continual work that he does in us. I, I can't fix this on my own. You can't do that other. And again, whether you're a Christian or not, you can't put this back together on your own. We need Jesus, and we need him to do that work. Josh Tandy shared an article uh, with me from the New York Times this past week, and it was an interesting article as it talked about the number of Olympic athletes that will defect every four years when the Olympics uh, come around. It never fails that every time the Olympics happen, there are at least a handful of people uh, athletes from foreign countries who will walk out of the Olympic Village and will seek political asylum in places like the U.S. And, and this article told the brief story of an Iraqi athlete, a guy by the name of Raid Ahmed. I think I said that right. Uh, he was an Olympic weightlifter uh, from Iraq, and, and his country chose him uh, to carry their nation's flag at the Atlanta Olympics in 1996. Now, carrying your country's flag, as you can imagine, is a pretty prestigious honor. And so you can only imagine the hopes and the reputation of a guy like this uh, amongst his people, including their leader at the time, Saddam Hussein. But while Ahmed trained vigorously and pushed through difficult injuries leading up to and preparing for the Atlanta Olympics, he never had any desire or any intentions of competing in Atlanta and then simply returning home. I mean, he worked hard to make sure that he was in Atlanta, but only so that he could seek political asylum and more importantly, freedom in the United States. And he did that successfully in 1996. And it just got me thinking, can you imagine wanting freedom so bad so badly that you would work for years to get to a place like Atlanta for the Olympics only to pass up that opportunity for competition to ultimately find freedom. And isn't that what we all want? Freedom, healing, forgiveness, a new start, a beginning, a do-over, freedom from trying to hide, freedom from trying to fix ourselves. Look at verse 17 one last time. He says there, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That verse just simply says this, When you trust Jesus, when you surrender your life to Him and say, I want Him to be the very center of my life, the gift we find is freedom. Is that what you want? Is that what you embrace today? Let's pray. God, I pray for the power of this truth today that in any way that I came up short, Lord, that you would make sure to impress upon our hearts in ways only that you can, that freedom comes from you, that you are the only one who can take our shattered lives and you can put all of the pieces back together. God, I want to pray for men, women, and students here in this room today. 
uh, those who know Jesus Christ, who have surrendered their life to him and are trusting him, but still find themselves struggling today. God, would you remind them today in this time and in this place that they can't fix themselves, but only you can, that you do the work. And God, I pray for those that are in Christ Jesus today that you would remind us and teach us what transformation looks like and even the power of repentance too as an ongoing you know, act of obedience, as a discipline in our lives where we repent, we're reminded that we can't do this on our own. We're releasing ourselves once again as we find that sin has no power over us, but we're replacing those needs with more of you. God, would you remind those here today who are struggling, who are really touched right now by the work that you're doing in them, that it's about more of you. God, that we need more of you. Maybe you'd even pray that prayer today in your own heart or even out loud. God, I need more of you. I need more of your grace. I need more of your love. I need that reminder in my life once again today. And God, I want to lift up those here today who don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if that's you, I want to just talk to you for just a moment because I want to make sure that you hear very loud and clear that this work of healing this work of repair, this work of transformation in your life, it doesn't begin until you trust Jesus, until you're willing to say with your own mouth and in your own heart that I need Jesus Christ. And it's not just simply about making a decision for Jesus, but it's about surrendering your life to Jesus. It's about surrendering the wounds. It's about surrendering this need or this desire to fix yourself, but it's about saying, I need Jesus and I need him as my Lord and Savior. And if that's you and if that's where you are today, why would you put it off any longer? If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never surrendered your life to him with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to just give you that opportunity right now. I'm not going to call you out by name. I'm not going to embarrass you. But if you want to, in your own heart, say, I'm, I'm inviting Jesus in today to do this work in me. Just slip your hand up where you are right now. Just as a way of saying, I'm, I'm turning it over to him. I'm giving him permission to do that work in me. Pray this prayer with me. God, I'm turning my life to you today. There is no one else who can fix the mess that I'm in but Jesus. God, forgive me of my sins and the wrong that I've done, but make me a new person in Jesus Christ today. God, we thank you that you do the work, that all the responsibility is on you, and we thank you for your work of healing and transformation in us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.